being a pastor doesn't mean that I'm no longer a father. (laughs) I want to show you something this morning. Last Sunday, those of you who were here saw me take a little kernel of wheat, just like this, and I pushed it into this jar of soil seven days ago, exactly seven days from this moment that I'm standing here. And look what happened in seven days. Look how tall that is. One kernel of wheat that has been lying dormant in a jar in this pulpit for years gets pushed into some soil, and look what happens. Isn't that just incredible? I am just blown away. And I wasn't even thinking about this thing germinating and sprouting when I pushed it in there last week. But yesterday we came to church, and lo and behold, there it was. God's little miracle. Isn't that just incredible? I think that's the sermon in and of itself this morning. So thank you for coming. We'll uh, see you later. Unless a kernel of wheat goes into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, what? It produces many seeds. Isn't that incredible? That this, already almost two inches tall in the span of a week, yes, that kernel of wheat died in that ground, but it is living on. I'm just blown away. That is God's miracle in creation all around us. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just acknowledge that you are in control. You are the creator. You are God over all. Heaven and earth and everything in it, Lord, you are sovereign. And we give you, Lord, praise for how you work, even in the example of the smallest thing, like a kernel of wheat. And so thank you, Lord, that in that we have an example of what you, Lord Jesus, did for us by going into the ground in death. Lord, you laid down your life and came forth from the grave so that many could live and that we today are the harvest. We are the fruit of your death. And so we thank you, Lord, that you put yourself on that cross, that you died so that we, the many, could live. And I pray, Lord, that once again this morning we would be stirred in our hearts by this message. By your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our ears, Lord, open our our minds, open our hearts to receive what you have for us. I pray, Lord, that each one of us would hear from you In Jesus' name, amen. Two men were building a garage for the very first time. They were not at all experienced in this realm of work. And so while one of the men was attaching the siding, the other man was just standing there watching, and he noticed something rather odd. Each time the first man picked up a nail, he would inspect it, look at it closely... And then he would either hammer the nail into the siding, or he would just throw it away. And so, the second man continued to watch as this puzzling behavior continued. Over and over again, the man would pull out a nail, inspect it, and then either hammer it into the siding, or throw it over his shoulder. Finally, the second man had seen enough, and so he walked over to the first man who was working on the siding, and he asked him, "'Why are you throwing away half of our nails?' To which the first man replied, The points were on the wrong end. (laughs) To which the second man replied, You dummy, those are for the other side. (laughs) 
How you see things all depends on your perspective, doesn't it? How you look at things in life can depend on your perspective of how you see things. Two men looking at the same thing and yet see them in an entirely different manner, both of them quite bizarre. But now as we see this example and we see how perspective can change how we view how we view things in life, I want now to draw your attention to how two people can come to the cross of Jesus Christ. Two people can come and view the same event, examine the same evidence, and yet both people can leave drawing the exact opposite conclusions. One man can come to the cross and make a declaration of faith. Surely this man was the Son of God while another man can come to the same cross and scoff. He saved others, why can't he save himself? You see, how you see the cross of Jesus Christ all depends on your perspective and the condition of your heart. Today I want you to consider again the theme of our series, that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ stands at the crossroads of life and death. It stands demanding a decision. Like two roads, there's a fork. The left hand or the right hand, which will you choose? What will you do with this Jesus? Which road will you travel? Will you, che- will you choose the narrow gate, the difficult road that Jesus has laid out that leads to salvation, life, and heaven? Or will you choose the broad, attractive road that leads to condemnation, death, and hell? As we consider that all-important decision... No example from Scripture presents us with a more literal and visceral example of the two paths that can be taken than that of the two criminals. From today's Scripture reading, we are reminded that there were three crosses on Calvary that day. And I'd like to thank those from the decorating committee and others who assisted with bringing those second two crosses. So we have three to really give us a full picture this morning that there were three crosses on Golgotha that day. We know that there were two criminals who died with Jesus, one on his left hand, the other on his right. Transgressors, those who were condemned for their acts and what they had done. Now, who were these two men? Well, no names are given, and only a few details. But those scant details that we are given of these two men demonstrate that they are the worst kind of men that you could possibly imagine. They are vile, foul-mouthed, They hurl profanity, curses, and obscenities at everyone around them, including Jesus. They are condemned for the crimes of robbery, but are most likely killers as well. It is also likely that they were members of Barabbas' gang. Remember, the notorious criminal, the one who that center cross was originally intended for, the notorious murderer by the name of Barabbas. But of course we know that Pilate's gambit to free Jesus that day had failed. For when he had given the crowd the option between freeing Jesus or Barabbas, he had simply assumed that who would want to release a killer? Who would want to release a man like Barabbas? And yet the crowd demanded, Release Barabbas! Then what shall I do with this Jesus, the King of the Jews? Crucify him! They shout. And so that day, Barabbas, a notorious killer, goes free. And Jesus takes his place on his cross. And so, in doing so, 
Jesus fulfilled a 700-year-old prophecy of the prophet Isaiah. He was numbered among the transgressors. Jesus died between two transgressors on the cross of the ultimate transgressor. He was numbered among the transgressors. And he fulfilled the second part of that prophecy that he made intercession for the transgressors when hanging upon that cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And so as those two thieves hung there that day, condemned to die, the most prolonged, painful, and shameful death that you can possibly imagine, they knew that all hope for life was lost, that their only hope the only silver lining remaining in their, in their miserable existence in that moment was that death would come quickly to end their suffering. That is the only hope that remained for them. But little could they have imagined as those two criminals hung crucified on either side of Jesus, little did they imagine that hanging between them was one last opportunity for hope beyond death. One last opportunity to change their ways, to choose life rather than death. But the question would remain, what would they do with this Jesus? Two criminals, both in the same position, presented with the same dilemma. Would they accept or reject that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God? Now, as we examine these two men, I want to draw for your consideration a clear contrast These two men, each in their own unique way, represents every single person who has ever approached the crossroads of Calvary. Because in their two decisions, we see clearly the choice between the broad way or the narrow way. The choice between life and death. Damnation or salvation in these two men. Let's set the scene once again. Luke chapter 23. If you'd like to turn there, I'd invite you to open your Bibles. And let's consider again this passage, beginning in verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, just translated Golgotha, they crucified him there, along with the criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood by watching. And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was written a notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who was hung there hurled insults at him. If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Consider that spectacle and that scene. And examine if these words aren't true. That Satan and the forces of hell were momentarily let loose on that day as never before. What could have satisfied the prince of darkness more than being able to torture, humiliate, and kill the prince of peace? And as we consider the horrors of this demonically-fueled spectacle of suffering and humiliation, 
we see that Jesus, that even him being crucified was not enough to satisfy the hatred and the darkness that consumed men's hearts that day. On top of his suffering, they had to heap more insults, obscenities, hurling all sorts of blasphemies at him, like flaming darts of the enemy. And it reached such a fevered, fervish pitch that day that even one of the condemned criminals who's hanging beside Jesus in the same position joins in and begins cursing Jesus and mocking him as well. You know, as we think of that, doesn't it seem sheer madness? Doesn't it seem utterly absurd that one man who is condemned in the same position as another to begin insulting and adding ridicule on top of what that man is suffering in the same position that he is. It seems absurd, doesn't it? Why would he go to such lengths? Why would he, a man condemned to the same fate to die on the cross, feel it within himself to add insults to another dying right next to him? It seems sheer madness. And yet, before we judge this man too harshly, consider, truly consider, have you ever done this before? Consider what the prospect of your crucifixion would do to you. What kind of things would that begin to do in your mind and in your heart? What kind of horrors and fears would that begin to release within you if you were the one physically in that place? What madness might you or I be driven to? A Roman of that time by the name of Seneca, a contemporary of Jesus, recounts that those crucified would normally curse everyone, including their own mothers and fathers, for having borne them. They would curse the very day that they had been born for their life to end in such a fashion. The Roman philosopher Cicero also wrote that the executioners would sometimes even go so far as to cut off the tongues of the criminals so that the soldiers would not have to listen to their vindictive tirades as they hung on the cross. And so as we consider this maddened criminal hearing the, the blasphemous insults of the crowd and the mockery of the soldiers, and he echoes their cries, he then adds a personalized touch. If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. See, there's a personal touch in there. He's like, if you really are who you claim to be, then do something about it. And while you're at it, why don't you help us out while you're at it? Come on. But he's doing so in mockery. And little did he realize in his mockery, in his scoffing, how close at hand salvation truly was. If only he would believe. But instead he cries out, if you are the Christ. My friends, that is the voice of unbelief. If. If you are the Christ. Those two letters, tiny letters, I-F, if, those two letters have enough venom in them to poison the soul. Was there ever any if about Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God? The water was turned to wine. The dead were brought back to life. The lepers were healed. The blind saw and the deaf heard. The food was multiplied. The wind and the waves obeyed his command to be still. He walked upon the water. What more proof, what more evidence was required for people to say, yes, he is the Messiah. And yet, if, if, if you are the Christ, 
Prove it to me now by coming off the cross, and then I'll believe. How much proof did he need? How much proof do you need? How much? You see, if is a very treacherous word when we direct it towards God. Have you ever said prayers like this? If you love me, if you love me, then answer my prayer. If you're listening, give me a sign. If you'll just do this one thing, then I will obey you. If you're really in control, then how could you let something like this happen? If. But now watch what happens when we change the criminal's first word from if to because. Because you are the Christ, save yourself and us. The tone changes completely, doesn't it? When we change if to because, you see, if says, prove yourself to me by answering my request. Because says, I believe. Now here is my request. The true attitude of our hearts can often be revealed by the smallest words. You see, in this criminal's words and actions, we see a fulfillment of the word that Jesus had spoken to Nicodemus on that rooftop many months earlier in John chapter 3 and verses 18 to 20. This is what Jesus said to Nicodemus. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. You see, no matter how compelling the evidence, the scoffer is always looking for one more loophole to justify his own sins and unbelief. There's always one more if. Yeah, you've done all that stuff. Just one more thing. If you do that, then I'll be convinced. Then I'll give my life to you. If is a treacherous word. Deep down, when we come to the Lord with that if on our lips, trying to justify our behavior, it's because deep down we know that if we truly enter the light, the darkness will be revealed. And we don't want to know what darkness lies within us. We don't truly want others to see what we have to confess. And so we push back and we refuse to enter the light. Have you ever been like that? Have you ever been afraid to enter the light? Have you ever been afraid to confess something or to expose yourself to someone for fear of what it will reveal about you? Now, of course, there's a good chance that you're probably not a robber or a murderer. But you know, as we go down the list... And we consider that maybe you're not a robber, maybe you're not a murderer, maybe you're not an adulterer. But in the dark recesses of each of our hearts and minds lies the roots of those very things. Remember that Jesus said, Whoever looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. And whoever hates his brother is already guilty of murder. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 sums it up. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? So while we naturally have an aversion to comparing ourselves to a maddened criminal on the cross, and, and we can rightfully say that we haven't lived a life of crime as he had, but we must remember that while man looks at the outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. 
Yes, yes, entering the light of Jesus will expose our evil thoughts and our hidden sins. But it is only by doing so that we can be forgiven, cleansed, and redeemed. The first criminal refused to enter the light of Jesus, and so he sealed his fate. But there's a second criminal on the other side of Jesus' cross that day, and he had some words as well. Verse 40 of Luke chapter 23. But the other criminal, the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Wow. Now Luke, the author of this gospel, Luke, the beloved physician, he has some unique insights into the details of Jesus' life that the other gospel writers didn't mention. And this is a prime example Luke is the only one to record this conversation between Jesus and the criminals on the cross that day. And what is worth noting from this exchange is that it is apparent that somehow this criminal knew of Jesus. Whether he knew him or had interacted with him personally at some point, we don't know. But he clearly knew of Jesus. Now, that alone is not terribly surprising as there were often crowds of thousands of people who would gather to hear Jesus teach and watch him perform miracles. And, of course, it would be pure speculation on my part as to whether this criminal and Jesus did meet in some fashion. But whatever it was, whatever this man had heard about Jesus or had heard him teach on a hillside or or seen him perform a miracle, something about that encounter had left an impression on this criminal. Because on a day... When no one else would speak for Jesus and he refused to speak for himself, this man became Jesus' sole defender. How ironic that of all of the highly educated religious lawyers of Israel who were present that day giving their blessing to this execution, it was a condemned criminal who became the sole defense attorney of the Messiah. And what a compelling defense! All of the lawyers are silent saying, kill him, crucify him. And here a criminal is saying, this man has done nothing wrong. Incredible. Here is a man who at the 11th 11th hour and 59th minute and 59th second of his life, and up until this moment, his path through life has clearly been an utter disaster. But in that final moment of clarity, he makes a decision And he declares the truth. I am getting what I deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then notice, without using the word if, or making any other demands, he simply looks at Jesus. He looks at him, and he makes his humble request. Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Remember me. What more can any one of us ask of Jesus than that? Jesus, please remember me when I come before you. Oh Lord, please look at me and say, There you are, Danny. I've been waiting for you. Come, let me show you the place that I've prepared for you. I remember you. Your name is written in my Lamb's book of life. 
What more can any one of us hope for than to be remembered by Jesus when we enter that last day? Remember me, Jesus, he says. But what unspeakable horror for all those who will hear. I never knew you. Depart from me. And in this criminal, we discover an unlikely candidate for salvation. Perhaps the most unlikely candidate we could ever imagine. He had no brownie points to bring to Jesus. No church attendance. No acts of kindness or generosity. No religious sounding prayers or piety. And yet somehow those few words on the cross that day were enough. Look at the steps he takes. He fears God. He fears God, meaning he knew that he had to answer to God. He had a fear of God. Secondly, he admits his own sin and guilt. He says, I know I'm getting what I deserve. He admitted it. Thirdly, he acknowledges that Jesus is without sin, thereby acknowledging that he is who he claimed to be, the spotless Lamb of God. And fourthly, he asks, he simply asks for his mercy. Jesus, remember me. You see, there are many who try to earn God's favor. Many who try to work their way into his presence. But in the end, my friends, it is all grace or it is nothing. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no man can boast. My friends, salvation is all by grace, or it is none at all. If you or I have to add even one drop of works on top of the atoning blood of Jesus, then we are deceiving ourselves. Remember, this criminal had nothing to bring Jesus except a repentant heart. Psalm chapter 51 verse 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And Jesus looked at that criminal and he looked past the crimes and the sin and the blood and he saw his heart. He saw a broken and contrite heart and he uttered some of the most profound words, the most beautiful words in all of scripture. Truly I say unto you, today you will be with me in paradise. The word paradise is translated from a Persian word meaning a walled garden. So when a Persian king wished to give a special honor to one of his subjects, he made him a companion of the garden. And he was chosen to walk in the royal garden together with the king. You see, it was more than just eternal life that Jesus promised this repentant criminal. He promised him the honored place of a companion in the courts of heaven. He didn't just say, today you'll be in paradise. No, what did he say? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. My friends, heaven is not heaven without Jesus. That is, that is the pinnacle of heaven. Today you will be with me in paradise. That is what it's all about. It is about that personal companionship with our Savior. You'll be with me. If you're a Christian, you won't just be there. You won't just be in the, in the outskirts and Jesus will be off doing something else. No, you'll be with the Savior. And so here's the crossroads. It's decision time. You may think that this is one of those decisions you can push off into the future. Time is on your side. 
But beware, the next moment is promised to no one. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. None of us are. We never know amid the flow of life's choices which one will be final and irreversible. Someone once said that the story of the dying thieves was recorded so that no one need despair, and also as a dire warning to never presume on God's mercy by delaying trust in the Savior. Which road are you traveling? Which road will you choose? Consider that as I close with this story of an actor named Edwin Thomas, a master of the stage. During the latter half of the 1800s, this small man with a huge voice had few rivals. Debuting in Richard III at the age of 15, he found unrivaled success with his abilities to act out the greatest of the Shakespearean dramas. Edwin Thomas also had two brothers, John and Junius. They too were actors, although clearly not as gifted as he was. In 1863, the three brothers performed together in Julius Caesar. The fact that Edwin's brother took the role of Brutus was almost an eerie foreboding of what was to occur in just a few years' time. One little decision would not only affect the brothers, but an entire nation, and indeed stem the course of history. You see, this same John who played the assassin in Julius Caesar is the same John who would play the role of the assassin in Ford's theater. On a dark April night in 1865, when the American Civil War was pulling at the heart of soldiers and families alike dividing a nation, John walked into the theater and fired a bullet at the head of Abraham Lincoln. Of course, the name you would recognize is John Wilkes Booth, the notorious killer of perhaps the greatest American president. And that night would mark his brother Edwin forever. He would never be the same again. The shame from his brother's crime drove him into retirement and seclusion. He might never have again returned to the stage had it not been for a twist of fate at a New Jersey train station. Edwin was awaiting his coach when a well-dressed young man, pressed by the crowd, lost his footing on the platform and fell between the platform and the moving train. Another second and it would have been fatal. But without hesitation, Edwin locked a leg around the railing, leaned over, grabbing the young man, and pulling him back to safety, just in the nick of time. Now the young man who had been pulled to safety recognized the famous Edwin Booth. Edwin, however, did not recognize the young man whom he had rescued. That knowledge would come to him a few weeks later in the form of a letter. A letter from General Adams Badeau, Chief Secretary to General Ulysses S. Grant. The letter thanked Edwin Booth for saving the life of the child of an American hero. The son's name? Robert Todd Lincoln. How ironic that while one brother killed the president, the other brother saved the president's son. The choice is clear. Each one of us comes on our own to the cross of Jesus Christ, and the choice of which path you will take is yours, and yours alone. Which road will you choose? To every man there openeth a way, and way, and ways. And some men climb the highway, and some men grope below. And in between on the misty flats, the rest drift to and fro. And to every man there openeth a highway and a low. 
and every man decideth which way his soul shall go. Let's pray. Father, there are moments in life where the road is plain and the decision is clear. And Lord, I pray that in moments like this, we would not take for granted that there is a limitless supply of moments like this. That we can push off the decision, that we can delay. But Lord, I pray that as you have said in your word, that we would seize the moment for today. Today is the day of salvation. And so Lord, I simply pray that if there is anyone here today who knows that you are speaking to their heart, that Lord, they will choose your way. That they will say, Lord Jesus, remember me. Remember me. I want to follow you. I give my life to you. I put my trust, my faith, my hope in you and in you alone. Bless your word. Bless each one as we go by the Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name.